0: I often differentiate between performance and learning, for instance, so if I've got a group of athletes, let's say I've got 16, uh, 12-year-old girls and I'm taking them on a football coaching session, uh, what I see in that session, in essence, is their performance, not their learning, because we can't actually directly observe learning, what we have to do is we have to infer that learning is taking place through changes in performance over time.
1: Well, hello to you. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Now, if you've ever wondered about striving towards a goal, maybe taking a leap of faith, setting your sights high or bouncing back from a setback, then you're going to be in good company here on the Supporting Champions podcast. Pursuing performance isn't necessarily easy. If it was, high performance would just be, well, average performance. Enriching our lives through ambition, understanding and wonder, creating a stronger team, developing balance and purpose are at the heart of areas that I'll be exploring with guests from sports, performing arts, military and many other performance worlds and I hope you can tune into these conversations, maybe get lost in the back catalogue of varied contributions and take some time to reflect on what some of the conversations, experiences and life events have meant for guests and take time to reflect on what that might mean for you. This week's guest is Professor Mark Williams, who has spent his professional career understanding the neural and psychological aspects of acquiring skills and developing expertise. Mark has recently published a fascinating book called The Best, which admittedly gets me singing the soundtrack from The Karate Kid, but that's got nothing to do with it. The subtitle of the book, The Best How Elite Athletes Are Made, captures your attention Now, you might start jumping to conclusions that the book tends towards the nurture side of the nature versus nurture debate, but you'd be mistaken. Mark and his co-author, Tim Wigmore, weave a narrative through the book from the social, economic, environmental, and family factors that contribute to success. And in this discussion, I explore many of these concepts with Mark, but also ask him, given that we have a certain set of cards dealt to us, What could we do as athletes, coaches, parents, and supporting members of the cast to enable others to succeed, enable others to grow, especially during this disruptive phase that we're going through with the pandemic? All right, well, very warm welcome to the podcast, Mark. How are you?
0: Yes, good. Thank you and yourself?
1: Yeah, really good, really good. Looking forward to this conversation and um really keen to hear some of your experiences and insights into this realm of expertise and and also ask you some of the questions about your your new book, the the best and how elite athletes are made, a um, fascinating book that you've written with Tim Wigmore. Um Mark, can I can can you can I ask you a question to start off with? Um this is just me anticipating this conversation and I wanted to know whether your knowledge and insight into expertise, whether that actually acts as a lens that you view many of your day-to-day interactions with. Um, When you're talking to somebody, when you're observing someone deliver their craft or even your own performance, I'm I'm keen to know whether you are categorizing and decoding a performance as as you go through your day. Mm, yeah, great question. Firstly, <clears throat> thanks for
0: having me on the podcast. Uh, nice to see you start with such a challenging question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the interesting one, isn't it? I guess when someone says that they're a psychologist, uh, it immediately creates the perception that they're then analysing your performance or behaviour in some shape or form. But probably not, to be honest. I typically try and keep my personal and my professional life somewhat distinct. So... I'm sure implicitly it must do, of course, in the sense that it's part of the knowledge base and the experience that I've acquired over the years. But no, I don't um, categorise people as experts and novices on a day-to-day basis and kind of look at their behaviour in that regard. As interesting as that might be,
1: yeah, I can well, I can imagine it's it's tempting. Just, to, I mean, sometimes when I'm watching sport, um, once you know a little bit, it, it can i suppose take some of the joy out of it on occasions you think oh no that's a thing there that's or that's that's another concept that's being observed there or that happened because of this and um i think that's that's an interesting aspect of just how understanding can affect your day-to-day day-to-day life and i was i was going to ask you if that if it affects the other way around if you if you see a mistake or a mishap or incompetence in that sense <laughs> you saw oh, that's that happening there
0: no, I mean, I tend not to <laughs> micro-analyse sport when I watch it from an entertainment perspective. But I guess, yeah, on occasion, uh, if it might be a penalty shootout, for instance, or something of that ilk, then clearly I'll probably think, hmm, I'm not sure that was the right thing to do or, or things of that ilk. But uh, but as I said, i probably,
1: by and large, try and keep the two somewhat distinct. <laughs> That's very disciplined of you. Uh, so yeah, yeah. can can you help me then can you start off can I start off by asking you a similarly sort of broad and all-encompassing question and 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 tell me in your definition or or start from simple and build what is expertise?
0: Um, I mean expertise exists on a continuum Uh, suppose in the one end of it you have a novice performance right to the to the very far end of the continuum I guess which is truly elite world-class levels of performance. Uh, So it's very difficult to define someone as an expert per se because it depends on the criteria that you're using for that. But I suppose while the book does look at the best, it's also a book that focuses on skill acquisition and across that broad medium of skill and skill development and how athletes acquire these skills on the road from starting off as a relative novice uh, to in many of the instances in the book becoming you know some of the best athletes in the world uh, and I guess in that regard the book I think nicely combines the, the sort of cutting-edge science around some of the factors that impact on that journey and then through Tim Wigmore's access uh, to elite athletes we've also got some nice narrative and biographical information that um uh, involves some of the best athletes in the world you know people like Steph Curry Pete Sampras Marcus Rashford uh, kindly gave a lot of their time so we probably have interviews from 50 to 100 of the top athletes in the world here around their journeys along that continuum from novice to expert
1: and um and give us a couple of the 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 insights then so some some incredible names there that that have achieved remarkable things um, this this seems to me as though there's a number of different factors that I've read through in the book. Some of the things that you can do things about, yeah, uh, you, you, that that could be something you could influence or change. But equally, things that you can't and you might read the book and go hmm okay well I wasn't born in that sized town for example mm. yeah. or I wasn't born as a younger sibling um, so could you give us a bit of an overview as to some of the key characteristics that you explored first and then we can perhaps get into some of those areas
0: yeah and again I guess the book covers that continuum doesn't it from the things you can't control the one end to the things you maybe have more control over on the other and I guess as you partly alluded to there, some of the things that we have limited control over are um, when we're born, uh, where we're born, um, whether we're the first or older siblings, sorry, or younger siblings in that regard, uh, all have an aspect of uh, serendipity and luck to them. Um, And I think we probably sometimes underestimate the importance of luck on that journey to athletic greatness, And then on the other end of the continuum, the latter half of the book anyway, focuses on uh, optimising practice and training time and how can we create practice sessions uh, that create the greatest return on the investment in practice in regards to to the development of key skills. And, of course, they're things that we do have a lot of control over and they're less down to luck and more due to issues around creating the right kind of environment and the important role that coaches and practitioners play in that particular process. And then in between on that journey from what can't be controlled to what can be controlled, I think we also try and and sort of illustrate some of the adaptations that occur uh, in elite performers as a result of prolonged engagement uh, in the right type and quality of practice over a prolonged period of time.
1: Uh, That's an interesting concept, and it probably touches on the fundamental nature-nurture debate in terms of the sort of um, things that are written into your genes that you come out of the womb with. Then equally, you have people, and I certainly have have, have seen this, where, where you've got people that perhaps don't exhibit the highest level of physiological performance for example athletic performance but you see the rate of development that just seems to be almost again, slightly serendipitous that perhaps a, a, the same coaching program that's that's given to 10 people that one person just takes off with and so within that optimizing practice If you were to sort of take all of your knowledge about developing expertise and an optimized practice, optimized environment, would you still see uh, a broadish standard deviation of how much people will improve by in terms of their skills and expertise?
0: Yeah, and that's a never ending debate, I guess, in terms of the relative contribution of nature and nurture on the path to excellence. And clearly, it's some combination of the two. Um, and perhaps the the relative importance of nature and nurture may depend to a large extent on the sport as well. Um, Certainly, one can easily see how genetics can influence our responsiveness to training, and as you allude to there, it may well be that two individuals exposed to exactly the same quality and quantity of practice and instruction may not necessarily respond in the same way. Uh, What we don't have though, to be honest, is a great deal of research on this, a great deal of empirical evidence. So we don't know specifically what the genes may or may not be that impact on the efficiency of learning, uh, which is why, I guess, to some degree, the best way to find out is to put athletes into those uh, learning environments and look at their adaptations over time. Uh, which, of course, makes the process of talent identification very, very difficult. Um, It may be easier at some degree to to, um, identify athletes based on their physical and physiological characteristics, but in terms of some of the, the, if you like, softer skills around sort of uh, game intelligence, uh, technical ability and some of the key psychological skills, they're, they're probably harder to measure and their development is possibly not linear in nature. Um, and, of course, in many sports, it may be that the physical and the physiological capacities are determining factors in those sports, in the sprint event, for instance, or the distance running events. But in certainly team sports and racket sports, uh, like football and tennis and rugby, then it may well be, and in fact the data tends to suggest that at the very highest level, it's not always the physical and physiological characteristics that differentiate, and that it's maybe more about some of these psychological skills and their ability to make the right decisions <clears throat> at the right time, and of course their ability to execute key skills in the right way at the right moment.
1: And so it's one of the interesting features right right at the start of the book in terms of this young sibling effect um it'd be great if you could just describe that for us but i'm really keen to sort of understand your take on why this might be particularly prominent that so my understanding of this is that there's a disproportionate number of those that reach the top that are the younger sibling or have older siblings that might be the a better way of putting it from what i have read
0: Yeah I mean mean, succinctly your chances of being being an elite athlete are much higher if you have a sibling and much higher again if you are the youngest sibling and I suppose there are a multitude of reasons that may account for that finding. Uh, One is I guess that older siblings uh, along with their parents and mentors probably introduce younger siblings to sport at an earlier age and you know, the the older sibling will have had experience of that sport and then the older sibling can pass on that experience uh, to the younger sibling. And also at the same time, I guess, often the younger sibling gets to play with the older sibling and compete with um, the friends of the older sibling so that I guess we create an environment where the younger sibling, who might be physically disadvantaged by virtue of the fact that he or she is younger, is then having to perform in an environment with older siblings where there is a need to adapt and you know develop key survival skills (laughs) so that he or she can be invited back to play again the following week so and parents at the same time I mean they've they've obviously seen the older sibling develop and get involved in the sport so they're a little bit wiser and more experienced as well in regards to their knowledge of the sport uh, so that they're Uh, optimizing the experience for the younger sibling
1: okay so a couple of interesting concepts there so i'm taking so that there's that sort of introductory aspect there's a little bit of coaching and training from a maybe from an older sibling um it strikes me that there's there's an element of benchmarking that that's the standard that i have to now work to and that they're perhaps more likely to have some sort of motivation to compete Uh, and and acquire a higher level of ability so that they can as you say sustain their involvement Mm -hmm. it's almost like a vicarious influence by by the sounds of it that i can see what the next level looks like and i want to get there um i remember wanting to beat my brother in a foot race and Mm -hmm. and i remember the day i did um it was a real driver and i could feel it getting closer and that would then drive me to compete which had a knock-on effect, my somewhat rather rubbish sprinting career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I think you, you nicely described that, that phenomenon in essence in that clearly it fosters an element of competition there and I guess the younger sibling is always striving to at best keep up with and, uh, well, sorry, at worst keep up with and at best do better than the older sibling. So it, it, I guess it stresses and stretches the the younger sibling uh, to new challenge points and probably engenders a faster level of development than you would get the older sibling, who doesn't have, in many instances, I guess, uh, people to look up to in the same way and aspire to beat.
1: And um, and what's your sort of take on whether we're in a situation with perhaps somewhat limited interactions now? Because I suppose that sibling effect... Is the same sort of effect when you group together in teams and undertake practice. You get together and you you assess where you're at within a group, whether that is in individual sports such as running, where you can see where you are in the pack, or in games. Or you've got the limited interaction now in terms of practice with the current situation. Have you got any thoughts about how the skill? skilled adaptation will will change under the perhaps limited conditions that we've got with covid restrictions
0: yeah i think it's a great great question again uh, i mean you're probably right and i guess with the current regulations the most we could put on is a 3 aside game uh, so i guess both in formal training environments and of course in informal street sport type situations it is likely that COVID would have had a negative impact in terms of the amount of time that kids have been engaging in those types of activities. Uh, And, of course, from the the sort of professional sport domain, clearly we've had long periods of time where athletes haven't been engaging with each other. And that has presented challenges of how do you maintain an optimal learning environment when uh, you may have to do so when working uh, in small groups or even on your own, uh, are quite difficult. So I'm sure that um, that will have been a challenge to, to athletes at different levels. Um,
1: and again, one can only hope that we can return to some element of normality in that regard, overcoming. Anything that, anything you can see as an opportunity for people who might be in that situation, perhaps where the, the level of interaction or the competitiveness might be Uh, diluted because of these restrictions is there anything that people could do to offset or compensate for some of that in some of their practice
0: well there are other skills that they could work on uh, aspects of fitness so i guess it becomes a little bit more individualized i mean to some degree it's a great environment for deliberate practice per se so deliberate practice may be defined as as individualized uh, specific and focused training with the intention of improving some aspect of performance. So it's an opportunity for athletes and even people, people in business environments, to try and identify what their specific weaknesses are. Um, ideally, empirically, if it's possible to to garner or gather that kind of quantitative data, and then to develop prescriptive training programs to try and improve on those weaknesses. And then, of course, to measure that improvement over time, uh, which could be, for instance, some deficiencies in strength or power from the athlete's perspective or um, uh, some deficiencies around, for instance, leadership or mentoring skills in the business sense. So I guess in that regard, it's a great time to sit and reflect and think about how one can identify key weaknesses and then work on those to try and improve. Because, uh, you know, the research evidence typically suggests actually that the relationship between experience and performance is not necessarily that strong because a common characteristic is that people um, tend to practice things that they're already good at. And in fact, this is a, a, certainly a characteristic of sub elite athletes and maybe the uh, not-so-well-performing business people in the business environment as well in the sense that uh, experts spend longer periods of time practicing the things that they're not good at whereas sub-elite or sub-expert performers spend more time practicing things that they're already good at. Given the constraints of the possible lack of team-related practice opportunities then I guess there may be a direct link there to look at it on an individual basis, try and identify some of those weaknesses that you can work on under the current constraints and uh, where possible work with coaches and instructors to try and remedy those weaknesses uh, so that I guess when increased opportunities arise to go back into the team environment, you will have benefited from some specific engagement in deliberate practice over that time.
1: Okay, I like that. So I'm hearing there that Potentially, say, for the footballer, it may be that they're really good at at one-to-one interactions and beating a player, for example. Well, actually, they might not have that as much in terms of frequency in practice now, but maybe now's the time to practice free kicks or uh, set pieces or uh, accuracy of passing, that those perhaps more controlled skills um, or equally practice... ability to give feedback to somebody and and try some different methods if it's a coach or a leader Um, i'm I'm interested uh, i think there's there's increasing awareness uh, over the
0: benefits of a more individualized approach uh, to training Uh, because i guess if you're working with a group of athletes uh, what you have to really appreciate i guess is that the type of practice that may constitute deliberate practice for one individual which may allow them to develop some of the weaknesses that they have, may in contrast only be maintenance training for those who already have strong skills in those areas. So you can see the challenge from two perspectives here. The challenge from a coach working with a large group of athletes is how do I develop training sessions where each one of those athletes has the opportunity to grow and develop. And that's very, very difficult from the coach's perspective. Uh, Whereas in contrast, if you're working with an athlete on a one to one basis, then, you know, it's much, much simpler to try and identify those strengths and weaknesses and to put training programmes into place that will optimise the return on that investment. So maybe it's just a time to refocus a little bit
1: on the importance of individualised training programmes at this time. So when you're talking there through the idea of maybe working on some of your weak spots and, and talking about elite versus sub elite, um, perhaps focusing differentially on whether they're good at something or not and how concertedly they're trying to cover off some of those weaknesses. Um, What occurred to me, what came to the top of my mind was about this factor of confidence. and, And, and I'm conscious that this could be a cobweb within a, quagmire and a minefield here but i'll I'll try it anyway Mm -hmm. um it's just how important it is to be doing something that you know you're good at and reinforcing those strengths and gaining confidence it's almost confidence from the skills i suppose versus confidence developing those skills or equally confidence that you can grow you're growing particular areas that you weren't good at that develops confidence
0: well, certainly maintenance training or practice would help in terms of develop confidence and so much as clearly you're practicing things you're already good at. And I guess that creates a feel good factor to it. But at the same time, the, one of the important things about training, though, is to create what you might term as challenge points. So challenge points are, are those which stress the system uh, to adapt and to develop Uh, key competencies and skills and and I think that's why in essence experts tend to to fail more to some degree because they're always working on weaker skills they're always trying to um, raise the barrier in terms of what it is they're trying to achieve and by definition that means that their proportional amount of failure particularly in practice will probably be higher than that of the less expert individual. But I guess what experts have at the same time is they have remarkable resilience, uh, sort of linked in with high levels of self-confidence uh, and, and, and mental toughness. So in essence, their ability to, um, uh, to adapt to failure, and to develop new strategies and try and look at the problem in different ways is a key component of expertise. And this kind of growth mindset uh, is quite crucial, I think, in regards to uh, becoming uh, one of the best athletes.
1: so uh, can I ask you then for your recommendations then if you if you've got people that are in a place where they repeatedly do something they're good at but actually need to to challenge and stress some of the the practice or the environment or the stimuli that they're um, encountering whilst they're delivering? what they're delivering, mm-hmm. what things could they do to not only bolster their confidence or make sure that they're, they're setting themselves up before they have that failure? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost some of the preparatory work that you could do before you get into a situation where you need to bounce back from a setback.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting philosophical question that probably underpins many of the aspects of coaching, really, in the sense that, I often differentiate between performance and learning, for instance. So if I've got a group of athletes, let's say I've got 16, uh, 12-year-old girls and I'm taking them on a football coaching session, uh, what I see in that session, in essence, is their performance, not their learning. Because we can't actually directly observe learning. What we have to do is we have to infer that learning is taking place through changes in performance over time. So the performance that I see in practice has to be retained over subsequent practice sessions. And it also has to transfer to novel variations of that skill and of course, to performance in the competitive environment. So the reason why this differentiation between performance and learning is important is that research on effective practice instruction that suggests that if I want the best performance in a practice session, then what I should do is provide Uh, lots of instruction, do specific block practice of a single skill and provide lots of feedback. And what you obviously then get is good performance and good performance will probably raise levels of confidence in the athletes. But rather ironically, the reverse is true in terms of environments that develop optimal learning. So that maybe as a coach, my challenges should be <clears throat> Excuse me, what is the least amount of information that I can give the learner before the learner begins to practice the skill? To what extent are my practice conditions variable and dynamic such that they reflect the demands of competition, both technically, tactically, physically, and mentally? And then, what is the least amount of uh, feedback that I need to give so that I'm encouraging the learner to begin to problem solve on? his or own self so clearly those latter conditions are more likely to promote uh, more failure Mm. but in essence it is an important skill to have in becoming more competent this ability to realize the fact that you're not going to perform brilliantly all the time and to stress the system to try and perform skills in different ways uh, accepting the fact that failure is inevitable but looking at failure differently as a growth opportunity, uh, an opportunity to do things differently, rather than to merely sit in a fairly comfortable environment where you're able to perform skills reasonably effectively. And I think that that dichotomy between performance and learning is an important one, but you can see how it does create challenges linked to self-confidence and then linked to this growth mindset. And there's a difficult balance there for coaches.
1: That's an interesting one. So so minimal briefing mm. for a learning situation. You know, almost go out and play. Variable in the sense that you could have some curveballs or maybe stack one team versus the other so that it presents challenges to, to a situation. Mm. And then encouraging reflection in personally how i got on in that situation so that i'm taking the learning out of it um so it's quite it's quite free and quite personally owned i'm hearing is the optimum way that you could encourage somebody to learn
0: there, there's an increasing body of evidence that nicely illustrates the importance of street sport in the development of um, elite athletes across a range of different sports particularly football for instance and um, and the plus point there is they are environments with you know, limited instruction. Uh, kids tend to recreate these dynamic, chaotic conditions that they see during match play. And there is obviously no feedback. Um, so clearly it's, it's what the practice environment looks like. And whilst there is a lot of evidence to suggest the benefits of street sport, this doesn't necessarily imply that the role of the coach becomes redundant. Far from it. I think the challenge for the coach is how can he or she uh, then structure and deliver practice sessions that recreate some of those conditions that exist during street sport. So fundamentally, considering some of these cons- uh, questions that I posed previously in terms of, you know, what is the least amount of instruction do I need to provide? What is the realism of my practice environment? What is the least amount of feedback? Again encourages the coach to stand back a little bit and gives greater ownership or empowerment of the learning process to the individual athlete. But to some degree actually it means that the role of the coach is even more engaged because the challenge for the coach therefore is understanding the dynamics of the learning environment and then being able to shape that learning environment so that the athletes get the opportunity to practice the skills whilst at the same time Having ownership, uh, or the athlete has ownership over that learning environment. So it makes the role of the coach far more challenging. And of course, it means that coaches can't look at, you know, guidebooks like 101 best drills to develop skills in field hockey and, and football and just apply those drills. It means that coaches have to, uh, you know, think off the cuff, so to speak, about how do they respond and whether the <clears throat> what they're trying to get out of that practice session is coming to fruition or not and sometimes that means it's, me- it's messy coaching can sometimes be very messy uh, and it may well be that those messy environments probably present the best learning environments because ultimately sport is messy you know it's a very chaotic and dynamic environment and it rarely turns out like the textbook
1: okay so that that presents itself Um, as a challenge potentially for development for coaches i'm hearing Mm. but one one aspect that i'm I'm thinking about but also you raise in the book is is about parenting and i i i used to sort of share a story when you're working with an athlete really in depth really in depth you might be with them five percent of the day as a support professional Mm. a coach might be with them 20 percent of the day and that my flip was that, okay, the athlete is with themselves hundred percent of the day. And so it's about empowering them, educating them and encouraging them to, to take ownership for best practice in their preparation and performance. Uh, so as a support professional, you're, you're trying to encourage, but, but a young athlete is going to be with their parent 50 to 70% of the day, you know, just outside of the school hours, for example. and, you know this term of helicopter parenting that you you reference right at the start of the book about how potentially that can be damaging or it can inhibit uh, progression could you just expand that that particular point about how that could interfere with somebody's progress
0: yeah and the analogy i guess is that parenting and coaching does have a lot in common uh, in the sense that ultimately what you're trying to do is to develop the child by providing the right opportunities for skills to be acquired in a safe and growth-related environment. And much as I'm implying that uh, being very prescriptive and hands-on may have positive impact from a performance perspective for coaches, but that maybe being, having a better balance and being more hands-off and less prescriptive uh, may better encourage long-term learning and retention And transfer of skill then I think the same issue applies with parents in the sense that um, whilst parents have a crucial role to provide guidance uh, for kids at the same time I guess they've got to be careful not to try and provide answers to all of their problems I mean at some point the kids obviously have to stand on their own two feet and they have to make make their own decisions at time and take some responsibility and ownership over that and whilst there isn't a recipe book here that you could easily apply or a recipe that you could apply as to how to get that balance right i guess the general tendency for parents and for coaches is to try and provide too much explicit information uh, in order to try and limit the scope of the problem for the child or the athlete and that may not necessarily be the best balance as far as long-term development and learning is occurring
1: and uh, what what would that look like um, could you give us a few tips and, and tricks there in terms of as I say, explicit guidance about what, what someone might need to do to protect them or look after them, the sort of safety of the child, but equally reflecting on a session after they've performed it, maybe in the car on the way home, um, that that hot period of time for feedback for uh, for a, a child. What's, what's your tips for what would be best practice? What would be the... Um, what would be in the best interests of the child and their development
0: Uh, parents need to be involved and to show interest in 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 the child's development in the sport I guess but I think even at a very simple level rather than the parent being very prescriptive in terms of as soon as they get in the car saying you know this is what you did well this is what you didn't do well I think maybe they could put the onus on the child a little bit by asking them more proper prompting questions along the lines of how did you think that went Uh, you know what did you think were the things that you did well today what are the areas that maybe you were a little bit disappointed with today and what are the areas you think you'd want to improve on so in that way there's a bit of shared ownership over the problem rather than it being a very prescriptive dictatorial approach to it Uh, so the child is actually being engaged in the process and his or her input is being gained. Uh, I mean, ultimately, of course, it doesn't mean that the parent can then not provide some prescriptive guidance as and when required. But I think allowing the child to reflect a little bit about the things that he or she did well, and maybe not quite so well, uh, presents a more empowering learning opportunity as far as the child is concerned
1: just asking for a friend here um have you got any tips when you take that open question approach and uh, and the child just turns around and says "Oh, you are doing that thing again dad uh i don't know i don't know and they they stonewall you just asking for a friend you know just just yeah, in case yeah. you've got any insights there
0: <laughs> yeah i guess i can see how that might occur but no to some degree i think you just need to keep asking the questions i mean It doesn't necessarily mean that the child is ready for that type of approach at this point. Uh, And even if it is, I guess, sometimes too much information is not ideal. So maybe parents should just allow the child to enjoy the sport. And there probably will become a time, certainly in the the development of elite athletes, where they they will be interested in engaging in those types of conversations.
1: And... How fundamental is the relationship? Because I'm reading through some of your research, just looking through recently a publication with Donna O'Connor about positive relationships with sport, but also the importance of a positive relationship with the coach. So, I mean, there's a lot of debate, and certainly at the moment, about how we're encouraging children, how we're training people and... And certainly the, the abuse cases as a, as a backstop mm. and a reference point of, well, this is the standard, this is the way it is, this is what you need to do, and potentially that it has, to some degree, garnered some results for sports, for athletes, but it's come at a cost. Mm. And I'm interested to get your view on a nurturing, positive, constructive relationship between coach and athlete parent and an and, and athlete. Or child um, and the longer term implications for well being and thriving and uh, living, be- living a rich life beyond sport?
0: Well, the, the child's passion and interest in the sport has to really come from within. So, I think having high levels of intrinsic motivation from the child's perspective is very important for their long term engagement in sport. I mean, it's very difficult, I guess, if parents and coaches are pushing the child into those sports environments. So really, the child has to have a true love of the sport in order to engage in it in the first instance, or else, you know, ultimately, their ability to sustain prolonged engagement in the sport um, would be difficult to sustain and maintain. I mean, clearly, the coaching and the learning environment is quite crucial And and this is also part of the problem with coaching that is overly prescriptive in that there are some strong correlations between uh, these kinds of prescriptive dictatorial type practice environments and burnout in sport. And uh, I think to a degree, I mean, sport is meant to be fun. And and I think creative coaches can still uh, develop practice environments that are both challenging and stimulating that allow kids to uh, continue to develop the skills that are required, but also do so in a fun, rewarding and developmental atmosphere. And, and I think the coach plays a pivotal role in, in in helping to create those kinds of environments. And I guess, yes, you as you've alluded to, there can be issues here where, where the coaches probably don't provide those kinds of environments and may go over the top a little bit in terms of the desire to push athletes to to the ultimate limit and that's obviously a very very difficult balance
1: yeah and when it certainly seems to have shone a a very bright light on the the breadth of the skills required for for effective coaching it's not just about turning up setting a session writing a something on the whiteboard for a swim session or putting some cones out and and a whistle and a stopwatch we're talking about leadership characteristics we're talking about talking about deep mentoring and coaching about allowing other people to thrive it's it certainly opens up a broader skill set that coaches need to be tuning into reading about learning about investing in their own development for
0: yeah and there probably isn't enough research on coaching and the development of key coaching skills generally i mean if I was to be critical, I would say that, um, and this is also a positive aspect to it, but sports science has obviously grown quite markedly over the last two to three decades. And I think we've made massive inroads around the support of athletes in terms of areas like fitness and conditioning, diet and nutrition, etc. But um, I mean, ultimately, that the sports science support really just presents the icing on the cake, so to speak. But ultimately, it's the coaches that are more directly involved with the development of the athletes. In essence, it provides the, the main ingredient for the cake. And uh, I just don't think there is, there's enough time and there's enough research that has been done that looks at um, key skills around coaching and how do we develop some of those skills. I mean, clearly my interests in terms of coming at this from a skill acquisition perspective are more focused around Uh, the instruction process and how coaches provide instruction and deliver effective uh, practice sessions but as you suggest I mean the role of of a coach is multifaceted and there are a lot softer skills around people management uh, developing key psychological skills in athletes which um, which I think the coaches would would benefit from in the long term And, and even if you look at a lot of the, the coach education programmes, uh, you know, I always say, I mean, most of these coach education programmes are quite short. And if you look at the amount of hours that coaches accumulate in practice before becoming or being classified as an elite coach, is much, much smaller than the hours that typically an elite athlete would invest on that path to greatness. And ultimately, to some degree, degree I think all that the coaching process does Uh, to use an analogy here is is that they they teach you potentially how to use every club in the golf bag but don't necessarily show you how to play around the golf Uh, and i think probably more needs to be done to uh, support coaches through the um, continuing professional development process to help develop some of these skills that are important for, for the creation of elite athletes. So I'm, not, I'm certainly not blaming coaches here. I'm a coach myself. I certainly have a background in coaching. Uh, but I'm really thinking that there needs to be more sports science support, more research, more input from national governing bodies around uh, identifying and developing the, the skills that impact more on performance because um and of course the health and wealth welfare of the athletes as well because it is the coaches that spend more time with children and with athletes during development so they're the ones who are likely to have a greater impact in determining which of those athletes uh, become the best in the world
1: i'd wholeheartedly agree i think that there's been a real pendulum swing towards the sciences and and a focus on that and the that sounding too glib about it, uh, even though it gets misinterpreted a lot in terms of what it actually means, but the marginal gains approach of looking at the detail analysis and and tr- almost treating it as data in performance out. And I, I, I think that there's a broader piece around coaching and about respect of the profession and, and recognition uh, of it as a pursuit that you spend your life developing the craft of, of being an outstanding coach and the prestige that we give to it i think other countries like germany for example invest a lot more in that coach development pathway and recognize whereas perhaps in countries like the uk i'm not sure it's so much so and equally mm-hmm. as you say there's, there is a there's a there's a scheme of work i think that is wholly required about athlete well-being and resourcefulness and making sure that it's that they're, they're equipped for life, not just the athletic pursuits. Um, and coaching perhaps is, is often neglected. How do, how do coaches cope with pressure? How do coaches cope once their star athlete retires or that they have to, have to retire? Um, mm.
0: Mm. I, mean, so, I mean, there is some responsibility on coaches here as well, isn't there, in the sense that it still is the case that a large element of coaching practice is based on intuition and emulation. <laughs> Uh, whereas I think what we need to do is to infuse into that process uh, a desire and a need for for a more scientific approach relying on evidence-based practice for instance and whereas um, coaching will always have a strong craft element to it and there will always be some intuition to it it doesn't mean that that intuition can't be informed by science so to some degree I think uh, those involved in allocating resources uh, need to invest more in high-quality coach education. I think sports scientists need to do more research that would benefit coaches. And I, but I think coaches also need to be more open-minded in, I guess, embracing uh, the importance of science and the need for more evidence-based practice in what they do on a day-to-day basis. So I guess better communication, developing these kind of networks, I think would ultimately create a better environment for the development of elite athletes, or even for athletes involved in sport purely for physical activity, participation, and and enjoyment.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting, and I think that just the characteristics of a of a coach and making somebody feel good or or not creating that positive environment and. I'm wondering if, if you can help me try and broaden this area now about personal effectiveness and I suppose it, I would imagine it's relatively easier to control or observe deep skill performance you know the the pursuit of of mastery the outlier level of, of skill performance and success whereas I think a lot of teams that i've I've worked with there is there's always a couple of people you think they're just, I'm just glad they're on the team and perhaps they might not be the most athletic, perhaps they might not have the best touch. Um, And this definitely is observable in business and teams where they might not be the star player in terms of say raw intellect, but they have, and I, I don't know if this is a term, I'm just making it up now is, is almost collaborative expertise they, they, they do things that make the team bond and pull together. Have you got any insights around that that you could share with us?
0: Yeah, there is a chapter in the book, actually, on, um, on great teams and how uh, individual athletes can play a substantive role in developing great teams. So there's, uh, there's some material, for instance, from Jamie Carragher that talks about some of the skills that uh, he thought were important in terms of developing other players within the team and the overall team structure. Um, and there's also some some uh, great material from Batia, the, one of the NBA players who was often seen as one of the best team players because he did a lot of uh, the jobs that others didn't want to do in order to make sure that the team was successful. So um, the concepts of what creates great teams and how individuals can contribute to that process and help develop what might be called shared mental models uh, around which the team functions uh, is also an integral and interesting part of the book. Uh, Tied into that also, for example, is some nice material from Jamie Murray in terms of his communications and interactions with his um, partners in doubles tennis, uh, and, and how do we develop effective communication strategies uh, are also key factors n- not only in developing it, the best athletes but also of course in developing the best teams
1: and 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 what would be your um sort of take home findings from from the work what what's, what stands out as uh, consistently characteristic observations of those teams or partnerships what, what would you go in and observe if you if you spotted a team and thought that has those elements
0: Yeah well I mean there are areas around team cohesion of course both focusing on the task and the roles within the team that are important uh, and also potentially some aspects of social cohesion that are important although uh, the, the evidence is somewhat mixed in terms of whether for teams to be successful they have to be both cohesive at a task and a social level I mean there are plenty of examples of individuals within teams that uh, didn't get on for instance if you recall for instance Teddy Sheringham and Andy Cole uh, were never the best of friends and, and didn't communicate with each other very often but they were obviously very successful in that Manchester United team that uh, won the treble in the late 1990s so um yeah, I mean, it's a focus on those issues. I think it, it does help if you have a socially cohesive team environment. But clearly, developing things like shared mental models around what the team needs to do to be successful, you know, what their strategies might be in defending and in, and in attacking, for instance, uh, are some of the key aspects. So, communication plays a substantive role in there. Uh, and also, that it's the role of the coach. Uh, supported by the backup team, I guess, to look at the balance within the team in the sense of... um, Jamie Carragher talks a lot, for instance, about the fact that he wasn't necessarily the quickest footballer uh, at the top level at that time, but he had obviously great game intelligence uh, and he could read the game very well uh, and that compensated for some degree for his um, uh, lack lack of pace, per se, uh, and I, I'm quite interesting he actually talks about his relationship with Sammy Hippier who similarly was a player who wasn't blessed with, with great speed uh, but could also read the game very well uh, and maybe that's a, a rather unusual situation there of having two, two centre-backs in football neither of which have great pace but surprisingly it worked and uh, you know their, their ability to read the game and to organise people around them uh, as well as the underlying structure that I guess uh, the, the team was using at that time helped them overcome some of those kinds of limitations so getting getting those uh, sort of connections right and getting the balance right i think is very very important in regards to developing successful teams and of course some of that is very intuitive for sure not necessarily backed by strong science but um, but they are important factors
1: and, and that seems eminently applicable to the boardroom or the business environment in terms of what have we got a clear understanding of the task that we're working to have we mm. got shared uh, understanding of how it works around here those psychological norms and as you say you might have your your key players that perhaps might not have a star move such as pace or uh, that that pace in in terms of a yard of, of um of sprinting ability but equally they can read the room they can mm-hmm. they can perceive the dynamic as it emerges when it's unsaid it's unquantifiable in the moment or it's difficult to pin down but there's a dynamic that 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 moves
0: yeah no no, no that that's that's important as well of course as a as notion of having Shared mental models around behaviour and uh, even things like punctuality and turning up for meetings at the right time. Uh, You know, having a collective understanding of um, the types of behaviours that are needed for the team to be successful and that are shared equally amongst the team plays a big part in that as well. And even understanding the fact that um, not everybody contributes in exactly the same way towards the team goals is obviously very, very important as well. Uh, Clearly, we've all got different strengths and weaknesses. And I guess to some degree, the strength of the team, uh, in in that instance, the whole is often greater than the sum of the parts. So it's how do we bring those different parts together to create a cohesive unit uh, certainly from a performance perspective, if not necessarily from a social perspective, even though that would be helpful as well.
1: So can I just pick up on one, of, one dynamic there in terms of turning up, um, as an example, turning up uh, on time for a meeting, for example, those shared norms and standards of behaviour. In terms of the application of coaching ideas in terms of instruction and feedback, how, how is it best delivered? Um, what would be gold standard feedback about when somebody doesn't quite conform, doesn't quite necessarily live up to those behavioural standards? How would you how would you go about uh, providing advice for somebody to to encourage someone to step up? Mm.
0: Mm. I mean, it would help to a degree if the athletes, the players had been engaged in the process of developing those shared mental models and that, in essence, it's not the coach who is being very hands-on here and prescriptively imposing a series of rules on the players. I think if the players can understand the benefits of those rules, um, understand why they're important as far as the overall team development is concerned... And then have them involved in the process of developing those rules and policing those rules to a degree and deciding what be might be appropriate penalties for those who break those rules, uh, I think probably takes us a step nearer to creating a more cohesive environment.
1: Yeah, OK, so I'm here and there actually having some of the members of the team, not just the boss or the coach, actually doing some of the coaching to say, look, this is, yeah. this is something that we all signed up to. You've got a, and, and that role modeling within, um, but equally you've being involved, I suppose, you know, we've heard a few things about pressure training or, or consequences in team sports environments where the agreed punishment, or if that's the right word or consequence is an ice bath or, you know, it could be a hundred press ups or whatever it might be. But they, mm. And sometimes when you look at those after the event, they feel a little bit like it's a bit of bullying or a bit of oppression but actually if they're signed up to within the within the team if it's shared as to what that consequence might be i suppose it's within the group it's more acceptable mm.
0: yeah well it's it is better to work in a more empowered model of getting the athletes involved in some of those processes. even though ultimately of course uh, the the coach the manager would have overall control and authority but I think as much as that control and authority can be embedded through the players uh, in a tiered fashion then the better that would be I think creating a more team focused environment which would benefit performance
1: Fascinating! Um, thank you so much for spending some time chatting to me today, Mark. It's been um, it's been really interesting to explore a whole variety of different angles, and and equally congratulations on the book. I think it's uh, it's a wonderful collation of not only the fundamental research that backs up this elite athlete and expertise model, but but also some great anecdotes that really punctuate and illustrate the journey along the way. So thank you for joining us, and congratulations on the book.
0: Yeah, many thanks for the invite to come on to your pod. And-
1: Fantastic. All right, I'm going to go and work on some weak spots. <laughs> <laughs> Take a look at Mark's new book, The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. Now, the link to the book can be found in the show notes. Um, Do give us a follow on Twitter. I'm at ingham underscore Steve and the wider supporting champions at support underscore champs. We've got some nice little activity going on on LinkedIn and Instagram. So do uh, check us out there. Now, if you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help you go to the next level in work, life or sport, then take a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching Mentoring or drop us a note at inquiries at supporting and you can sign up there for a free consultation to explore which package is right for you.